Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hey, how are you? Uh, we are on Ignatius Press Live, and I have the distinct honor of introducing Bishop James Conley, the Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska, and I know him to be a good and holy man because I have friends that speak the world of him. Father Brian Kane, the rector at his seminary out there, Gregory the Great, and one of my best friends, Father Jim Stack from out here in Maryland. So uh, I'm with an esteemed guest today. So, so Bishop Conley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's an honor to be with you, and uh, we do have a lot of mutual friends. So that's always, of course, the Catholic world is very small. It's like a, a small family. So I'm never surprised when I meet somebody for the first time, and I don't think we've met before, um, but that there's, there's some connection. If you start talking long enough, you're going to connect with something. Right, and it all leads back to Christ. Yeah, it's a one-horse town. That's what it is. It's a one-horse town. So uh, anyway, so, so folks, the reason Bishop Conley and I have gathered today on Ignatius Press Live is because of this superb book. In the Eye of the Storm, it is a biography by Sigrid Grabner. It's just released from Ignatius, and it is stunningly prophetic and practical for these times we're in. Although it chronicles the heroic uh, and holy and mystical life of one of the greatest popes in the history of our church, Pope Gregory the Great. Boy, Bishop Conley, I don't know about you. Did this book and did his life speak to these times that we're in today? Absolutely. It's a remarkable book. Um, and uh, for on many, many different levels. But like you just mentioned, it's, it's so relevant and so timely. Um, I have to admit that I didn't know a whole lot about the life of St. Gregory the Great. And I, and I probably should, should have. I've read through his pastoral rule and I read his life of St. Benedict and a little bit of his dialogues, but not, I never read a biography of him. And I knew that he was great for a reason, uh, like Leo the Great, Gregory the Great, John Paul the Great, but he truly lives up to his name. He was a great, great man. And, and it's just remarkable how his life and his times really almost uh, prophetically, like you said, uh, match up in a certain way with the times we're living in right now. Certainly, certainly. He, he, um, so we'll, we'll kind of dive into it now because we, we have a limited amount of time. But I, I want to I bring up the things that pierced me, Your Excellency, and, and see if they also resonated with you. But number one, he, he came from a family of wealth and he was, he was an envoy. So he had a very important position as a diplomat, but he was, he was drawn to prayer. So he, cut the cord, amputated a life of wealth and prestige, and became a monk. So he sort of disappeared into that undisturbed life of monasticism. And because uh, the Pope at that time, I believe the year was five, uh, Pope Pelagius II died in 590, um, the people demanded that this monk named Gregory come out. I mean, they were going to burn this monastery down unless he came out. And he did not want to do it. He begged them, don't do it. But it seemed to me, Bishop Conley, that he almost buried his will within the will of God. And he said, I don't know why, 
but I'm going to step forward it because Rome is falling apart. It is a dark land. God, if you want it, I go. How, how did that resonate with you? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he was drawn to, from an early age, he was drawn to, to prayer and to um, his, his faith, his Catholic faith. But at the same time, and I think that's what makes him so remarkable, he had a great love for the city of Rome. And he had a great love for antiquity. Um, he was, because as you mentioned, he was from, uh, his father was the prefect of Rome, which I presume is sort of like the mayor of Rome or the governor of Rome. And um, so he, you know, was a, had a privileged life uh, growing up and was educated at the best schools by the best teachers at the time. So he had already, by the age of 30, uh, had uh, starting to make an impact. You know, people knew who he was and he was friends with, you know, the, the really the, the movers and shakers of his time. But he was called, he felt he was called to this deeper, more contemplative life. And I think when he when he, you know, knew and, and learned about the life of St. Benedict, he was drawn to that uh, monastic life. And so he just basically disappeared off the scene, like you said, and just devoted himself to prayer and to work, work and prayer, ora labora. And, um, you know, and, and it's amazing to think about a, somebody who is that much in the limelight just sort of disappearing off the stage. Yeah, that's it. And, and right away, it seemed to me, Your Excellency, that he absorbed by absorbing the saints and prayer life and fasting, sort of that spirit of penance as a monk. When he came out and became pope, he really he knew the burden of his identity. And, and right away, there was three or four factions of barbarians that were just plundering Rome. There was a plague that was, I think, wiped out one third of the population. There was flooding. There was pestilence. There was they, the I guess the barbarians weren't letting food in. So, so what, what does, what does uh, the new Pope Gregory do? He leads a penitential pilgrimage because it was his thinking, Rome has brought the plague on ourselves. So he, so he sort of led this ragtag group of the Catholics that were still in the game to different cathedrals and churches all around Rome. It was a, it was a march. And it was in that march that Rome actually began to squeak out of recovery and the plague actually ended. So right away, he went to the spiritual. He went to the spiritual. So, so Your Excellency, talk about that. Bishops, uh, let's make it practical. Bishops, the Pope today, talk about the spiritual, sort of that penitential um, pilgrimage that, that bishops, priests, and the Pope must take so the laity that might be staggered by whatever can sort of recover from where we are. Yeah, I'm reminded of, uh, of a, something that St. John Henry Newman said once in a sermon. He says that the, the invisible world has to be more important to me than the, than the visible world. And uh, he said the invisible world must become more real to me than the visible world. And I think when I was reading through the, the book, um, Gregory saw that. He saw things through the lens of the supernatural and always had that in his forefront. And um, that's what motivated him to realize that it was only God who could guide him and guide the people, especially once he was elected pope, guide the church uh, back to her, um, to, her, to her really center and focus for the people. And, you know, today, one of the things that was really remarkable, and I want to say one thing, too, about the author. Um, I have never read any of her works, but it reads like a novel. 
I mean, it, it, it just grips you from the first sentence. And it reminds me a little bit of that great classic Quo Vadis by um, Henri uh, Schinkiewicz um, in her descriptive kind of narrative through telling the story of St. Gregory. And it takes you right into the city of Rome. You're walking the streets, you're looking at these ruins that today you can see these very same ruins as Gregory did 1500 years ago. It's the same thing he saw. Where else can you go in the world to see something that was man-made that is still standing and still has the same look, the same trees, the same hills, the same ancient monuments are there. Um, and her her language and her literary skill is just beautiful. And the translator, whoever did the translation must have been a very, very good translator because it really does uh, capture the, the beauty of her writing. So with that little commercial for her, um, the, the one thing that really was remarkable to me that really I, I think pertains to our day and it pertains to me as my life as a bishop is that, you know, here is this Pope who the whole world is crumbling around him and uh, all kind of attacks from the barbarians in the north and then the immorality, uh, you know, all around him, um, political intrigue, disease, plague pandemic and yet in the midst of all of that he does these remarkable things i mean that the, these things these these visible things in the world that seem to be just crushing and falling down upon him kind of like our world sound like i feel sometimes with this the, the the world we're living in today you open up the newspaper and it looks like it's all falling apart but in the midst of all of that he just he he he, he shone he shined you know, he, he did these remarkable things, um, accomplished remarkable things in the midst of this very challenging uh, culture in which he was immersed. And so I think that's a message to all of us that, yes, we live in very difficult times. Yes, there's all kinds of challenges around us. But um, if we have the, the supernatural vision and allow God to use us, we can do great things even in the midst of this crazy world in which we live. Thank you, Bishop Conley. Uh, excellently put. Uh, yeah, you say you said it perfectly. In, in thinking about the Vandals and the Franks and the Lombards and the Vascoths, all these Vandals, these barbarians, these these atheists that were just picking at like vultures at Rome. They took what they wanted. The thing that staggered me was uh, in the book. By the way, again, in the eye of the storm, just just an excellent read. Uh, Your Excellency, as you said, it reads like a thriller. But but what struck me is Gregory. <laughs> Gregory going out and meeting one of the Aryan kings. It was like Goliath. And he said, I beg you, take my life, take my head. Just don't take the Romans. Please, you've, you've destroyed us enough. I, I'm just your meek. I'm your aching. I, 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 I'm, I'm struggling as a pope. Just kill me. Save the church. And what does this giant do, this, this pagan do? He prostrates himself in front of this humble man. He took care of them. And then he did the same with the, the Frank uh, barbarian over and over again out of humility and, 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 and deep prayer and fasting. He managed to turn the tide. So going back, sometimes, uh, Your Excellency, I, I think of the Franks and the Labards and the Vandals. And I think of paganism of today, atheism, humanism, secularism, you know, just the anger, the anti-God's natural law is falling. 
they're the new barbarians pounding at the doors of America or the West. So we'll go back to the role of that Pope Gregory identified, unless we have that supernatural aspect and turn to God, turn to prayer and have this penitential spirit among us, we don't have a shot to beat it back. He won. He won every battle, I believe, because of that. At least that's what I read in the novel. Absolutely. I mean, he was, um, he had tremendous spiritual courage that uh, nothing daunted him. Um, and, um, you know, he was very human. You know, he, you know, you can see that he struggled and he had his weaknesses. He wasn't a, like a superhero or anything like that. But he was so focused on his vocation and what he was called to do by God, he believed that God was behind him. Like you said, David and Goliath, he's like David, you know, with the stones. Uh, you know, he believed that God was with him and that he could slay this giant or at least protect his people from this giant that was encroaching all around him. Um, and that comes from a deep faith and, and, and a deep love for God. I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Your Excellency. He, he knew the burden of his identity with every plague and problem and challenge. He just overcame it and another problem would take its place. And, and I was struck by, I was struck by what, what I, I'm going to ask you, Bishop. I don't know if this is literal or metaphorical. Are you with me there? Kind of froze up, froze up for a second. What was okay. the last point? So, so here's what Paul the deacon wrote when they were translating his, his um, I guess, his sermons on Ezekiel. He said, one day, Gregory, I'll paraphrase, Gregory was in bed, sick, with stomach pains. He couldn't sleep. He was suffering. But uh, Paul the deacon sort of looked through the bed frame, and he saw a dove perched mm -hmm. on Gregory's forehead, and his beak was in Gregory's mouth, almost like the Holy Spirit was allowing him to produce these 28 different sermons on Ezekiel, which can still be read today, along with the dialogues. And his pastoral letters. That's the amazing thing. A lot of his writings from the late 500s are still available for reading, and they're and they're brilliant. So, was that? Do you see that as literally where where Paul the deacon said, "I saw a dove preaching into Gregory's mouth," and that's why Gregory is able, one of the reasons Gregory is able to preach. I mean, how do you how do you read that? Well, I think that uh, I mean, I I thought when I. Uh, think of that image. I think that uh, Paul the deacon, who must have been—I don't know much about him—but he's he's uh, footnoted a lot in in her her book. Um, must have himself been a very holy man, and you know this was a gift for him to see what God was doing through in and through Gregory, uh, and to and really to see literally uh, how the Holy Spirit was. Uh, um, uh, filling his mind and his heart and his voice uh, with truth and wisdom and goodness and beauty. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, he probably saw that. He probably saw that. Um, I don't know if anybody else saw it, but uh, <laughs> he, he probably saw it. Uh, he did, as, as you know, far better than I, Bishop Conley, the Pope was enormously frank and candid with the clergy. Um, and he had written... Um, you know, he rebuked the clergy often. He was very, you know, he was, he was bold. He was the Pope. He was their shepherd. So he had written, um, I'm reading here from page 227. He said, but what shall we say for ourselves who weigh down the people of God, whom we are unworthily set over with the burden of our own sins as clergy? We who destroy by our example, what we preach with the tongue. 
uh, he's he goes on and on about uh, later on he goes on about we are dumb dogs that do not bark when we contracept the truth etc uh, and, and we make it practical to today uh, with these encroachments on the world uh, what must bishops or clergy or priests or even laity you know deliberate Catholic laity uh, is one of the things we struggle with is we're not prophetic as Gregory begged his bishop and, and clergy to be yeah, I think that uh, um, you know to be absolutely. I mean, I think one of when when I read this passage or when I read some others in here about the way Gregory spoke to his clergy, but also how, how he spoke to the lay faithful, uh, he's kind of being brutally honest with uh, with 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 everyone. In other words, he didn't play any favors with anyone, and he wasn't he wasn't. Uh, you know, we use this word a lot, but transparent, but uh, he was absolutely transparent. I and mean, what you saw was what you got. And he wanted everybody else to be transparent and not to be, you know, playing political games or trying to win favor, curry favor with the rich and the, and the, and the powerful. And um, calling, I think, calling his priests to holiness by really challenging them to live up to their, their calling. And it was like a gentle father. It's sort of when a father has to rebuke his son, you know, he'll use maybe harsh words and he will, um, you know, really speak honestly to his son. But at the same time, the son knows that he loves him. And I think that's one of the things that, why he's able to get away with it because they already knew that Gregory would die for them. You know, he, he proved that over and over. And so, therefore, he had the authority and the, um, um, you know, the stature to be able to speak very bluntly and very boldly to them, even to the point of, uh, you know, really kind of chastising them. And I think that's, um, you know, something that um, not, not only bishops and priests, but faithful fathers should need to do as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Absency. I agree. I I, um, you know, something that I found just startlingly beautiful is after he sort of put down the, the invasions, the barbarians, uh, the plague had ended. He was starting to free up some of those trade routes because of peace agreements. Uh, Rome was starting to get back on its feet, but then he realized as Pope, but they're hollow. They have no faith. And he, and he was writing again to, to his good friend, Deacon Peter, he said, the daily sadness of mine is always old and always new, old by its constant presence and new by its continual increase. He said, with my unhappy soul languishing with a burden of distraction, I must do something. So what he did, Bishop Conley, is he wrote the dialogues, which are still read today, all these, you know, 1500 years later. And, and it was brilliant because he wrote about the, the modern day at that time everyday man, the soldier, the farmer, the priest, whomever. He wrote about um, Augustine, or I should say Benedict. Um, and he wrote about miracles and great things would happen, cheerful things, almost like a child would write. And the people of Rome absorbed these sort of supernatural miracle stories of joy. And they had a jolt of energy, like, ah, God can act this way. God can act supernaturally. Maybe that's why the plagues ended. Maybe that's why the barbarians went away because good men and good women of good Catholic cheer prayed throughout it all, and now we're good. Um, so I'm wondering today, uh, with, with everything going on, how can we, um, 
uh, as a bishop or as a member of the laity or, or Catholic authors, how do we help societally? How do we help the culture? Gregory knew the culture of Rome had to be strong and Catholic-based, had to see Jesus Christ in the culture. How do we bring that about in America today? Well, that's a great question, Kevin. Um, and I think that we all have to realize that we were made for these times. That if we believe that God's providence is at work in us, which we do, and that God's providence guides us, then we are right where we're supposed to be here today. And we have a work to do. Um, you know, we can always complain about what's going on around us. We can uh, deny what's going on around us. Uh, we can long for supposedly happier days in the past. But the, the reality is, is that we are alive right now today because this is part of God's providential plan. And knowing that and believing that should give us joy in the sense that um, this is right where I'm supposed to be. In whatever vocation we're in, if we're a priest or a bishop or a sister or a, a mother or a father, husband, wife, single person, whatever, whoever we are, we are part of this tapestry of God's providence. We're links in a chain going all the way back to Gregory. And, and, and you know, and, and again, I don't want to bring him up all the time. I do. St. John Henry Newman uh, has this wonderful uh, reflection on how every age thinks their age is the worst of every age. In other words, it's about ready that the world's about ready to end. And people today think this is it. We're in the last times, you know, and, 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 and it's not, we, we continue on. And I think we waste time and energy and our, our particular age right now, especially, you know, in the political situation in the United States and uh, cultural situation, uh, the pandemic, you know, it's easy for us to either give in to anger because there's a lot of anger out there given to fear and to just freeze up because of the fear. Um, I struggled myself with, you know, uh, bouts of depression and anxiety, and it's partly because of the time and, and not realizing that, you know, like John the 23rd said during the Second Vatican Council, Lord, it's your church, I'm going to bed. In other words, we need to have that sense of joy and peace, even in the midst of our own struggles. And um, and that's what a believer does. And that's what Gregory did. That's how he was able. And that's what he knew he had to instill in the hearts of his people that, um, you know, that we are all going through this together. We're not alone, we're not isolated. That's what Satan wants to do is separate us and isolate us. But we're all in this together and we should be loving one another and loving God together, which brings about that joy and peace that we all seek. Yeah, right. God's in control, Bishop Cuntley. You said it well. I, you know, so this book is 200 and some odd pages long, and and I think I found out what he believed as Pope to be the most important mission of, of his own. We only have a few minutes left, but but I'll, I'll say it, and then I'll lead into something that he, I know he tried to reform. But on page 172, it says just a simple line. It says, throughout his entire pontificate, he believed that his most important task was to strengthen priests and bishop spiritually. The church had a divine mission. And what he did, it, you know, at that time, as, as again, the barbarians began to sort of fade away and the plague sort of went away, 
is he said, I want to get into the liturgy. And many people credit him with Gregorian chant. And he wanted the liturgy to be flawless. He wanted it to be beautiful, a place where the soul was lifted into something liturgically beautiful. And he worked and he worked and he worked. And, and I wonder now, Your Excellency, looking out on the landscape of, of just the Mass itself, back in the year 592, Pope Gregory the Great said, if the Mass isn't beautiful, if it doesn't lift the soul into something sacred, then really, you know, it's we're, we're missing the boat, or I am as Pope, I'm missing the boat. So he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and in the 14 years he was Pope, by the time he died, the Mass in Rome was beautiful. Mm. So I'm wondering today, 2021, 2022, I should say, how do you see that? Is that is it, how vital is the Mass throughout the world? How should it be celebrated? What 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 can we do to lead people back after the pandemic to lift sort of souls in the Mass? Well, that's a very um, pertinent question because, you know, the U.S. bishops um, are going to launch this uh, two-year Eucharistic revival, and I've been meeting with my priests. I've had dinners every night this week and trying to, in the next couple of weeks, meet with every single one of my priests, and we're going to talk about how can we do what Jesus said. You know, we can't really expect any kind of new evangelization and to draw people back and to evangelize new people if we don't have this transcendent element to draw people. I mean, we can, we can be great apologists, we can give great claims and rationale for the truth of the Catholic Church, but unless people experience this transcendent, uh, uh, cosmic, heavenly uh, liturgy, then uh, their hearts are not going to be convicted. Their heads might, but their hearts won't. And that's why the beauty of the liturgy Gregory saw, especially in song, music, because that appeals to the imagination. And the imagination is what really feeds the heart. And he realized that unless there was something, and to do it well, to me, that's really what's lacking is we've all become, and I myself too, I'm talking to myself, we all become, priests become um, lazy. They become um, sort of casual in the celebration of this great mystery that none of us can comprehend. And if the priest really believes in what he does at the altar, then the people will believe too, because they'll see him and the way he behaves, the Ars Celebrande, the way he uh, operates around the altar, they'll, they'll be drawn into that same mystery and taken up into that beauty, which um, takes us out of this world and gives us a little taste of heaven that keeps us going every day. Bingo, he sees a spiritual father that wants to lead his soul to heaven. He sees it behind the, behind the ambo when he preaches prophetically, when he consecrates the Eucharist, even as he processes up the aisle, he just sees a shepherd who wants to lead their soul to heaven. It doesn't matter if the homily is indelicate. It doesn't matter. This man cares for my soul. So, so Bishop Conley, thank you for those words. Um, we'll kind of check out near we're, we're, we're sort of uh, running out of time. But what I'll say is Pope Gregor the Great, one thing about him is he, he had the mystical side that believed in miracles. He spoke and wrote about miracles. Miracles happened in his own life, but also he was brilliant. He was learned. He was studied. He was a writer. So he seemed to combine both both the, the, the spiritual and the temporal to become one of the greatest popes of all time. And he was never comfortable. He, he overcame all his illnesses, the problems, the enormous issues of the dark eternal city at that time. He just won every battle because he sort of handed them to God. And as you said, Bishop Conley, hey, it's your church. I'm going to bed. 
that was sort of his attitude because he had that level of faith. So for you uh, viewers out there, the name of the book is In the Eye of the Storm. Take it from Bishop Conley and, and Kevin Wells, uh, Ignatius author. We both read it. We both endorsed it. Uh, it is exceptional. As Bishop Conley said, it is a it reads like a thriller. Uh, any final parting thoughts, Bishop Conley? I would only just say one more thing. I mean, you, you, you summed it up beautifully, Kevin. But remember, one of my favorite parts was, you know, his family, because they were so wealthy, they owned all that property down in Sicily. And he was sent down to manage the farms and the crops and the buildings. So he, had, he was a practical man. You know, he, he, knew, uh, he knew the earth. And he, uh, you know, it wasn't just in an ivory tower, but he was very much rooted in the soil. And I think that 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 um, that being able to 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 really um, live in the real world um, was was another thing that became a great asset that he brought to his pontificate. Uh, excellent. You're, you're exactly right. And I loved the relationship that he had with his mom. Oh, yeah. He gained such courage from his mom who said, I know you don't want to be Pope. I don't care. God wants you to be Pope. Stop being a coward, Greg. And, <laughs> and mom, okay, you said it. All right. And that's kind of what led him on his way. He had a great relationship with his mom. So uh, who, who, who actually ended up becoming a saint. And so did his dad. Uh, so with that said, thanks very much for spending the time with Bishop Conley and, and I. And, uh, and we'll see you down the road. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.